Today is a bit of an extraordinary day in the life of our church. Uh, just calendar-wise, we have the opportunity together this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, at the close of our service, and then this afternoon out at the lake to celebrate baptism together. So we have both of those beautiful, worshipful sacraments on one grand day, and you have maps to the lake today. I hope you'll make it a priority part of your day to join us out there. It's it's a grand celebration. This morning, and this time, we're going to continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We have made it all the way to chapter 7, and honestly, it's been kind of a tough series. Uh, we've been encountering things like being told we need to be meek and merciful and pure in heart and stop being angry and get reconciled and not to commit adultery or even entertaining the thought or keeping our word, but never lying, turning the other cheek, loving your enemy, stopping storing up treasures on earth, stop worrying. At this point, it can begin to feel kind of like your weekly beating, you know? Welcome to North Wake. <laughs> Bend over, grab your ankles, right? Um, this week... I found one, though, that I thought, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, uh, I found one in the Sermon on the Mount that I had pretty much nailed rather than it uh, going to nail me for a change. And this is the one, uh, Jesus teaching in chapter 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. And I read that and I thought, ah, I, I'm good. I'm good with this one. I'm not perfect with this one, but I'm, I'm good with it. You know, I'm really not a tremendously judgmental person. And uh, the more I thought about it and began to study and pray and work through in preparation for this morning, the more I realized I had been horribly deceived. Um, Just one of many stories I could share with you that God has brought to my mind. Yesterday, uh, you know, I've completed all of my study, all of my work. I'm prepared to bring this message to you. And I pull out of my subdivision out in rural Franklin County and I... I'm driving down John Mitchell Road, and I see two young thugs walking by the road. Uh, One of them has no shirt. One of them has a wife beater. One of them is smoking. They're on the wrong side of the road. They're not particularly interested in getting off the road so I can get past them. One of them has a mohawk, and I think out loud. Nobody else is in the car, so I say this out loud. I I just say, dumb and dumber. That's that's what I said. I, I said that. And so I like to retract my earlier thoughts about being unscathed by this morning. In fact, this morning I find myself facing again those three words that most of us have heard when we were young, three words that we needed, we hated, and we would do almost anything not to hear those three words, grab your ankles. Because this is, we knew when we heard those words that there was a necessary, loving, stern correction that was about to be administered to our life, at least to certain parts of our lives. And uh, this morning, this text is another one of those grab-your-ankle sermons. It really is. Um, Where Jesus, for our good and because of his great love for us, um, chastises us and warns us. But this one might sneak up on you a bit, like it, like it did me. It's easy to read this statement and think, you know, I'm good on this one. I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm good. 
And uh, I would like to see if by God's grace and by his word this morning, we might be able to change your thoughts as mine have been changed about the applicability of this particular teaching of Jesus to our lives. So if you would, grab your ankles, let's pray. Lord, do have mercy on us. We are blind to the condition of our hearts, I think, most of the time. And, and this morning, we need to see rightly. We need you to show us where sin has crept into our heart in this matter of being judgmental that we may not even be aware of or that we have explained away. So have mercy on us, God, and by your kindness, lead us to the sweet place of repentance from our sin. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Okay, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Jesus says to us, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do not judge. Now, just... At the top, this raises questions. Does that mean that it would be wrong to judge a cake-baking contest? Is the Whistler's Convention in Lewisburg immoral because they judge the Whistler's? Um, Obviously, no, not at all. That's not what Jesus intended. This can be and often is used in our day to morph into kind of a spiritual don't-ask-don't-tell policy. Where... Our discussion of our sins are off limits. Don't judge me. Philip Yancey writes of a scenario he encountered involving this perspective of a friend of his named Susan, who is a Christian, and she told him that her husband did not measure up and she was actively looking for other men to meet her needs for intimacy. Um, Susan also mentioned that she rose early each day to spend an hour with the father. And Yancey asked her, he said, in your meetings with the father, do any moral issues come up that might influence this pending decision about leaving your husband? Susan bristled. She said, that sounds like the response of a white Anglo-Saxon male. The father and I are into relationship, not morality. Relationship means being holy, supportive, and standing alongside me, not judging. See, Susan, Susan is in for a very rude awakening because the New Testament is replete with these teachings like we find in Hebrews chapter 13. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. God will judge us. Romans says this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. As my gospel declares, um, God will judge. It's who God is. It's what he does. He's, he's a judge in part. And the Bible teaches that we as God's people are to judge in certain scenarios, in certain manners as well. For instance, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, Paul writes this church instructing a particular man who was involved, ensnared horribly in sexual immorality. And he says, I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? 
God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. See, there are scenarios where judgment is not only right, it's required of us. So the issue here is not a carte blanche uh, outlawing of judging, but it really does concern what we would call maybe being judgmental. Uh, More along what Paul teaches in Romans 14, he says, You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. Um, This judging that Jesus has in mind is not judging in the best interests of the one being judged. It's not done in humility, mindful, weightily mindful of your own great sin. This judging involves pride. It involves looking down on someone else. It is opposed to to mercy. So Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And of course, um, that means it'll be measured to you by those you judge. I mean, what goes around comes around. You judge somebody harshly, they're going to have a similar opinion of you. But Jesus has a far greater concern than that on his mind here. He is concerned that this kind of judgmentalism brings about the judgment of God upon us. The rabbis used to teach that God has two measures. He has a measure of mercy and a measure of justice. Which one would you like him to use on you? In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And this idea of the, the potential judgment of God on our life and work is intended to be a motivation for us to be gracious to those in need, to those who are struggling with their sin, with a speck in their eye. And we've already seen this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount on a couple of occasions. One, Noah went over with us a couple weeks ago in Matthew 6. It says, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The idea seems to be when God brings a kindness to us, he then watches to see if in fact it changes us and we pass it on. Should we fail to, that's evidence that we, in all likelihood, have never appropriated God's mercy fully in the beginning. That we are liable to God's judgment as a result. To choose to pass on judgment instead of mercy is to show that we have not fully grasped the mercy that's been given to us. Now, I'm not talking about doing this perfectly, mind you, but representatively. What... What represents you? Do you typically judge or forgive? Do you show mercy or do you condemn most readily? This passage urges you to draw near to God and get mercy from Him in such a way that it changes you and you pass it on instead of judging others. Now, Jesus continues 
in the third verse of our passage today, he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? The, the imagery here is almost comical. Think of it with me. Okay. Somebody has a little teeny speck, like a speck of sawdust in their eye, and a guy has a log, some of your Bibles, in his eye, and he's trying to help them. Okay? This is the way, the imagery that Jesus is describing to us. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a log or a plank in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, Jesus is concerned here with our tendency to judge others' sin as worse than ours. And even to overlook our own sin in our judging. Our sin, Jesus is saying, should loom large in our eyes. Uh, There's a fellow named Millard Fuller. He was involved. I think he's the founder of Habitat for Humanity. Uh, He addressed the National Press Club on public radio at one point in time. And he was remembering in that address a workshop at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary with 200 pastors in attendance. And uh, the pastors are having discussions about how greed and selfishness is the reason the church never has the resources it needs to assist others creatively. And um, Millard asks a seemingly innocent question. He says, uh, is it possible for a person to build a house so large that it's sinful in the eyes of God? Raise your hand if you think so. And all 200 pastors raise their hand. And then he says, okay, um, can you tell me at exactly what size the precise square footage a certain house becomes sinful to occupy? And there's silence. He said you could hear like a pin drop. None of them have an answer to that. Until finally, a a small, quiet voice speaks up from the back of the room and says, when it's bigger than mine. That's how you know it's sinful. And that's how we tend to think about things. We, We... Our own sin looms small. And Jesus here is saying it should loom large in our eyes. Not our sin in comparison to others, but our sin in comparison to the cross of Christ and what he had to do on our behalf to procure forgiveness for that sin. We should feel compelled to deal with our sin before anyone else's. When we judge others and look down on them for their sin, we usually have fallen into one of two errors, often both. The first is we greatly underestimate our own sin. We may go even beyond that. We don't just underestimate, we ignore it, we excuse it, we justify it. We simply do not see our own sin well. It's interesting. There's a survey done in U.S. News and World Report. It was reported there's 89% of Americans thought incivility, rudeness, was a problem in our culture. 89% of Americans thought that was true. Um, 73% thought that the mean-spirited political campaigns were to blame for that. 67% thought rock music was to blame. 52% thought talk radio was to blame. And 1% thought their own behavior was uncivil. 1%. See, we simply do not see our own sin well. When we neglect our own sin and focus on that of another, we become what Jesus calls a hypocrite. A pretender. Um, 
He says in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's what a hypocrite is. And you don't want to be a hypocrite. Jesus had nothing good to say about hypocrites. Here's an example of his um, words about hypocrites. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. You don't want to be a hypocrite. Jesus has nothing good, and I'm being kind, to say about hypocrites. There's an old story um, that comes, oddly enough, from a 4th century Egyptian monk. I don't don't know when the last time was you heard a good story from a 4th century Egyptian monk. It's been a while since I ran across a really good 4th century Egyptian monk story, so I thought I'd share this one with you. It helps us think about what Jesus is telling us here. This, This particular monk told his monastic leader, I am troubled in spirit and I want to leave this place. He wants to get out of the monk business. And uh, the old man says to him, why? He said, I have heard unedifying stories about one of the brothers. And the old, the old man said, are the stories true? He said, yes, father, this, the brother who told me is a man of trust. The old man answered, the brother who told you is not a man of trust, for if he was so, he would not have told you these stories. When God heard the cry of the men of Sodom, he did not believe it until he had gone down and seen it with his own eyes. The brother said, I too have seen it with my own eyes. And when the old man heard this, he looked down and he picked off the ground a wisp of straw. And he said to the young monk, what is this? He said, "Uh, straw. And then the old man reached up and touched the roof of the cell and said, what is this? And the young monk answered, it's the beam that holds up the room. And the old man said, take it into your heart that your sins are like this beam and your brother's sins are like this wisp of straw. Jesus is urging us to see our sin for what it really is in all of its magnificent heinousness. But it's not just that we neglect and underappreciate <clears throat> our own sin generally. We generally, we, we do not appreciate the gravity of the sin of judgment that's welling up in our heart. We don't understand the significance of what's happening inside us when we judge. For instance, I'm, I pull out of my subdivision. I see these two young thugs walking down the road. Okay. And what is happening in my heart at that moment is far more significant than a bad haircut or tobacco addiction or disobeying pedestrian traffic laws. There's a log that's grown in my eye. Judging is that log. It's that plank. It keeps us from helping others. See, we should, say of our own, we should say of ourselves what D.L. Moody said of himself. He says, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any other man I know. Okay. And that's how we should think about our sin. We tend 
to greatly underestimate our sin. And the second thing we fall into in this judging is that we have forgotten how totally dependent we are on God's grace, how desperate we are for God's grace to be free from it. When we judge another so mercilessly, we have forgotten that the only hope for us in our own sin is the mercy of God that comes to us through the cross of Christ. We become like the man in Jesus' story in Matthew 18. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents, an impossibly unpayable debt, was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a much smaller amount, a repayable debt. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. And instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And if you read the rest of that story, you know that Jesus is not happy with this man. Do not judge lest ye be judged. And Jesus, it's interesting in this judging stuff, he doesn't seem to be addressing uh, mere prejudice where we would judge somebody based on the color of their skin or the, uh, the fact that they have a mohawk or whatever it, it might be. Um, although the Bible condemns that kind of prejudicial judgment soundly, you can read the book of James if that's a vulnerability you have. He's not really addressing misjudging People other, uh, you know, you, you never know. The guy with the mohawk and the cigarettes walking on the wrong side of the road might be a Rhodes Scholar. I, I doubt it. But he might be a Rhodes Scholar. You just, you never know. And judging wrongly is one of the liabilities of this. But, but Jesus, what he's addressing here, it's interesting to me, he's, he's addressing judging people who actually deserve to be judged. They have a speck in their eye. There is something in their eye that is blinding them. They have sin, is the moral equivalent in Jesus' story. And one of the tragic consequences of the kind of judgmentalism that Jesus is addressing here, the hypocritical kind where you skip past your sin and you forget about the mercy that's been given you and you focus on judging another, see, that keeps you from helping them. It keeps you from helping them get that speck, that real, genuine, troubling, blinding speck out of their eye. And that's why Jesus concludes our teaching today by saying, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Remove the judging And then you can share mercy and actually help, Jesus is saying. We cannot show them the mercy they need until we let go of our sinful judging. Now, much is obviously at stake here with this judgmental attitude, but at this point, a number of you may be saying, whoa, 
that was not as bad as I thought. Um, I'm not perfect, but I'm good with this whole judging thing. And uh, let me... Let me do a, a brief exercise uh, with you that I did for myself and just thinking through where judgmentalism flourishes in relationships and see if I can talk you out of your comfort zone. So if you would re-grab your ankles, I want you to think through these kinds of relationships with me, okay? First of all, how about your marriage? Those of you who are married, um, have you noticed how keenly aware you are of your spouse's screw-ups and shortcomings um, and how far worse they are than your own, really. You know, it's, it's interesting in, in the marriage counseling that I do, when people come in, um, it's, it's like they, if I meet with them separately sometimes and it's like they're not even married to each other. It's like they're from two different marriages. You know, he comes in and he says, it's her fault. And she comes in and she says, it's really almost all his fault. See, that's exactly the kind of judging that Jesus has in mind here. Where our sin is small and our partner's is big. How about with your children? Have you ever disciplined your children inappropriately? Say, in anger? But then you justified it because of what they did. What they did was so horrible. The offense they committed was so horrible that it deserved an angry outburst. See, that's the kind of judging that Jesus has in mind where our sin becomes small and our children's sin becomes large. But let me not let the children off the hook. How about with your parents? You know, where, your par- where you did something wrong, something really small wrong, And your parents go off the deep end. They go ballistic on you. They go nuts. What's wrong with these people? Okay? To the point where you find yourself completely disregarding what they're saying to you because really their overreaction is the problem. Or how about with your siblings? Have you ever responded to a parent's question as to why you did some misdeed by saying, yeah, but he did it to me first, or you should see what she did. See, that's the kind of judging that Jesus is talking about, where your siblings, your brother or your sister's problems, worse than yours. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about. What about people who hold different opinions from you? Someone who disagrees with your beliefs, someone who has a different doctrinal position than you do. Do you ever vilify them or think less of them? or attack them, or become overly defensive of your own position, you're not critiquing them for their good, but for your exaltation? How about political and cultural matters? How do you feel about people who are all about global warming? How do you feel about people who write off global warming? How do you feel about people who are anti-SUV, like it's some evil machine from hell? And how do you feel about people who don't realize that SUVs are evil machines from hell? You know? I know how you feel about them. They're jerks, okay? They're jerks. And you don't realize what's going on in your heart is much more significant than what is being driven. You're judging. Um, and I've got a lot more categories, but I'm running out of time. I'm running out of time. Um, you know, I... I remember, this is 25 years ago, I still remember, 
uh, when I was working for an engineering firm, I was being mentored by one of the older engineers, and he took me out into the field, and we were, we were out in the field, and this is in Dallas, Texas, and Dallas is notorious for its uh, low riders with big stereos, where the stereo costs more than the car. And uh, one of those low riders pulled up next to us at the light, and the guy in there was obviously just being as cool as possible, stereo, the entire car's hopping from the stereo, you know. And I look over, and I think, jerk. And he says, my friend Louis says, um, now there's somebody who's really proud of their stereo. Absolutely no judgment. You know? And, you know, it's funny, 25 years later, I still remember the rebuke God administered to me because of the judgmental heart I had towards that guy and his stereo. Um, enough? I hear somebody say uncle out there. Okay. Jesus urges us not to judge, but to deal with our own sin first and then be merciful, to pass on what comes to us from Christ. John Stott says, the secret of our relationships with one another in the Christian church, especially when we have our differences, is this phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord. To despise or stand in judgment on a fellow Christian isn't just a breach of fellowship, it's a denial of the lordship of Jesus. I need to say to myself, who am I that I should cast myself in the role of another Christian's lord and judge? I must be willing for Jesus Christ to be not only my lord and judge, but also my fellow Christian's lord and judge. I must not interfere with Christ's lordship over other Christians. And so this morning as we close our service by, by coming to the Lord's table, We come to worship Christ, our Lord and our judge. And to remember the depths of his love for us and declare his death and resurrection together until he comes. We will be faithful as God's people to meet and celebrate this table until he comes. And we come to commune with him. That's why we call it communion sometimes. We come to the table to meet Christ. The imagery of the table speaks of fellowship with Christ. We are coming here to meet Christ. And we come to find from him what Hebrews 4.16 says. It says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We come and we meet with Christ today to find the help and the grace we need to lay down our judgments to give up the grudges we've held, the prejudices we've held on to. Um, we find grace here to lay them down. And the table at Northwake is open to everyone who is a follower of Christ, who is struggling to walk in fellowship with him. It's not open for perfect people. No perfect people can come to the table. But it's open to those of us who are willing to repent of our sin and come and have fellowship with Christ and find the grace we need to help us lay down our judging today. Will you confess your judging? Will you lay it down and deal with the plank that's in your own eye? And will you come to the table and meet with Christ and find the grace you need in your time of need? On the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his dearest friends, with the disciples. And he took bread 
and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in like fashion after the meal, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we come to this table only by the grace you give to us, by your death and by your resurrection on our behalf. We are the ones who deserve to be judged how wrong it is for us to judge another. You have been so good to us, so merciful, and we want to remember that now. We want to drink deeply of it and taste fully of it, the depths of your love for us. And so, Jesus, we come to these tables to meet with you, to have fellowship with you, to ask for your help in being free from the sin that so easily ensnares us. To remember you and to worship you and to bring joy to you by our obedience. And Jesus, we do this now for you and in your name.